Okay, season of making New Year's resolutions, right? Or maybe a season of reflecting on the year gone by. Um, Time to mark the new year, uh, the passing of the last. I always think it's a good time to do something a little bit different preaching-wise. We're out of Advent, but we're not yet ready to gear up back into January. And a couple of months ago, I had uh, an interesting experience. Um, I was visiting, I was in Florida for a meeting, uh, and my mom lives in Florida. Most of my family does. My mom uh, just turned 90. We celebrated her 90th birthday in, uh, in August. It was a great time. And, uh, and I was up one morning. She came out and, uh, and said, oh, I had the, the, the hardest time sleeping last night. And I said, well, you know, what was the deal? And she said, well, I just have these terribly guilty feelings. And, uh, and it, was, it was interesting. It's, you know, kind of sweet and kind of heartbreaking. But, you know, she regrets some things about uh, her actions uh, just the week before my dad died. And these are just kind, of, they're just kind of normal things. I mean, normal people would just say to my mom, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. You know, it's not, you know how, how could you feel guilty about that? But you know what your conscience does. You know, your conscience torments you. And, uh, and so I got to disciple my mom a little bit. And uh, I hope someday I get discipled by my kids as well. And I hope you get this experience. But uh, I, I asked my mom if she remembered teaching me the 23rd Psalm uh, when I was a wee lad. And she said, no, you know, I don't remember that at all. And I said, well, I remember it. You know, I remember that you grilled me and worked with me and sat, you know, by my bed uh, until I memorized the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. Those were kind of the anchors of my childhood experience with the church. And, uh, and I said, do you remember the psalm? And she goes, well, yeah, I, I think I do. And, you know, we kind of went through it. And, uh, and I talked to her about the gospel, the beauty of the way the gospel can address a guilty conscience. And, uh, and you know, we worked through the 23rd Psalm. You know, we, we recited it together. And she goes, that, that's, a, that's a great psalm. And I said, that's what you ought to do. Have that by your bedside. And when you wake up with these guilty feelings, you need to read this psalm and make that, uh, you know, kind of the root and the anchor of your life. And so since then, you know, I've been going back to the psalm and, uh, and thinking about it, and I thought that this would be a good thing to address during this bridge week uh, that we've got uh, in the church. In Cambridge, we have been going through the, uh, the, the book of Ruth during Advent, and uh, I preached two out of the four sermons. And, uh, and I mentioned a little bit glibly, you know, uh, uh, I didn't preach the first sermon, but uh, in the first five verses, you know, there's a remarkable uh, congruence with the book of Job. And I, I never thought about that until I read Ruth this time, that, uh, that Job and Ruth have got a lot in common, at least the way they begin. And, uh, and, and my glib mention was, you know, the Bible shows you how your life can fall completely to pieces in the span of five verses. And uh, that's what happens to Naomi. And, uh, and I mention it because I didn't know anybody recently whose life had utterly fallen apart in the span of five verses uh, until this week. I got an email from my best friend from high school, a guy with whom I had reconnected last summer. And uh, we had a great time together. Uh, took pictures together, sent them to my mom. She got the biggest kick out of it. And, um, and he texted me this week to let me know that his younger daughter, 30 years old, had died in a car crash. And, uh, and 
you know, his life just kind of went right through the floor and into the basement and into the sub-basement. And, and, you know, as close as we are, as close as we've been, as much as we've been through, I felt something very similar to that. And, and here I am studying Psalm 23. So this is a, an anchor text. It's about the providence of God, just like the, the book of Ruth is. It's about God's care, about his superintending uh, of our lives. Um, <clears throat> I would recommend, I won't say it now, uh, I did it in Cambridge through the month, but go look at the Heidelberg Catechism, look at Luther's smaller catechism, these different sections on the providence of God. Uh, they will root you, they will ground you, they will help you. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism says something like, the, the providence of God teaches me to be patient in affliction uh, and to be grateful in prosperity. And it teaches me to be confident that nothing will ever be able to separate me from the love of God. Um, so look at that on your own time. But what I want to do this morning is look at Psalm 23, or this evening. Uh, let's look at Psalm 23. And I really want to revolve <clears throat> our thinking around these three assertions of what the psalmist says he will do or what he shall do. In verse 1, he says, I shall not want. Uh, in verse 4, he says, I will fear no evil. Uh, and then in the last verse, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, so let's look at those three things. First, he says, I shall not want. Uh, in the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Thus far in the book of Psalms, God has been identified as a king or a deliverer. Uh, he's also identified inanimately as a rock or a shield. And so it's a bit of a shift uh, to hear him called a shepherd. Much more personal, isn't it? Uh, but ten times more personal than that, as he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, Martin Luther has said that, that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. And so it's good to think this through. Whenever you see a personal pronoun, you need to underline it, underscore it, draw a circle around it, do something with it. And notice it, pay attention to it. The Lord is my shepherd. Not just a shepherd, he is my shepherd. He's not your shepherd. He's not their shepherd. That's one of the devil's tricks. Oh, the Lord is the shepherd to all those good people at your church. But he's not your shepherd. Well, you have to say the Lord is my shepherd. It kind of takes you into the song of songs. I am my beloved and he is mine. His banner over me is love. And as my shepherd, uh, he leads me. There are a couple of ways that he leads me. He leads me beside still waters. Um, I think you can apply he leads me to lying down in green pastures, although it's a little bit more forceful there. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and that really is the intent of the original language. Uh, he is forcing, the shepherd forces his sheep uh, down into the green pastures, and then he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, the shepherd cares for his sheep. He puts their needs first as a father with his children. And we need to be clear about this lack of want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, again, that can be used to uh, condemn you. It can be used to uh, overwhelm you because you say, oh, sheesh, I am not a person who knows no want. I'm a person who is a cauldron of wants and desires. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, who is well known for a book he wrote called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, starts that book off by saying the Christian is the most contented person in the world, uh, and at the same time, the Christian is the most discontented person in the world. You know, content because we have everything in Christ, 
uh, but discontent because we've tasted heaven. And we know how good it is and how good it's going to be. And everything else more and more uh, falls short and more and more sours. Uh, A folksy version of the 23rd Psalm that was sung when I was in college um, said, uh, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. And that's an interesting way to think about this idea of having no want. Uh, In the new year, we are going to know yearning. In the new year, we are going to know discontent. We're going to have stretches of discontent, stretches of disappointment. Because we're going to have to wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, as we always do. And those are going to be hard struggles. But we have everything that we need for the struggle because the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need in this struggle. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. What really is in view, and it's in view with making me lie down in green pastures and leading me beside still waters as well, and the restoration of my soul, what's in view is a theological word called sanctification. And uh, rarely do we say, Lord, I'm so happy, I'm so thankful for sanctification. We can say, Lord, I'm thankful for justification, right? We do that. Uh, In Cambridge, we're going through the book of Romans, and we will launch next week into chapter 5. And the apostle says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a fantastic passage. Since we have been justified. But there's a a good point here, theologically. Again, you've got to think this through. Most people in relatively biblically oriented Protestant churches use the idea of salvation as a past reality. Uh, in, in the South, you know, people will say, I got saved. Uh, if you're a little bit more educated, you would say, I have been saved. Or I have obtained salvation. Or I've received salvation. But it's always a past reality. And in fact, Romans 5.1 teaches you to say that, Right? Since we have been justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God. So there really is a past sense to justification. But you'd be surprised to search through the New Testament and find that that word save is often used in a present tense as well. I am currently being saved. God is currently saving me. And that's what we call sanctification. Now, there's also glorification, which is future. We won't get to that now. God is saving his people. He is saving you. He is saving me. And how does he save us? Well, he restores our soul, and he leads us into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The soul's restoration is a full idea here. When he says, he restores my soul, some of you are raised King James, he restoreth my soul. Uh, The soul is the life The soul is the very core of who you are. It's not a spiritual part of you as distinct from the physical part of you. It's all of you. And you are being restored, and that notion of restoration has two sides to it. On the one side, it has the notion of a return or a repentance. So that word is used in places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it talks about the people returning to God. When it talks about the people restoring or or, uh, repenting and coming back to God, 
And so it, the, 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 the mood of it is a little bit different, but it's the same word. Uh, he restores my soul. He returns me to himself. He gives repentance so that I am turned back. But then the other side of it is this idea of being revived. And, and you remember in Psalm 19 it says the, the, uh, the law of God or the statutes of the Lord um, revive my soul and they, uh, they make wise the simple. And the parallelism is the revival is the giving of wisdom, the making wise. And so on the one hand, it's this beautiful picture of being revived, being made wise, being built up. Uh, but it's also this side of being brought back. I need both of those. You know, I need the sense that I will be brought back as I stray. I mean, we've just confessed sins. We've just heard fantastic words of Absolution, which I'm going to mention again in a minute because they're notable, uh, the, the language that we use there. But we are brought back. This is God restoring our souls and then leading us into the paths of righteousness. You know, guidance is a big deal. I don't know if it's a big deal as much anymore, but when I was young in the faith, it was a really big deal. I mean, there's all kinds of head scratching over divine guidance. In fact, there was a book that was written by a guy out on the West Coast uh, about knowing the will of God. And, uh, and a lot of contemporary authors wrote something about that. I think Packer might have written a chapter on it, and, and, uh, or maybe even a whole book on it, and some of the other authors. This is how you can know the will of God. We're all wrestling with, what's the will of God? Which way should we go? And maybe you feel that now, uh, you know, in terms of critical choices in your life. You want to do God's will. You want to do what's right. And you say, God, please show me the way to go. A job choice, a marital partner, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, the big choices. God, please give me some direction. Um, it's critical to know that you know, those things are important, but they're not the most important thing. You know, the guidance of God is not, necess- is, is not primarily into the vagaries of these choices that you have to make, but the guidance of God is primarily into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God, I want you to guide me and show me the way to go. Well, here's the way to go. The way to go is into the paths of righteousness for God's name's sake. At root, God guides us by his word into his ways so that we, who are instinctively rebellious, slow of heart to believe all that has been written, might eventually come to the place where we can say the Lord's ways are good. The Lord's ways are good ways. There are times when I don't want to go God's way. There are times when the Bible gives pretty clear instruction. This is the way you're to handle this situation. This is what you ought to do. And you say, oh, no, 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 that can't be right. Feels uncomfortable to me. Feels unsafe to me to go in the Lord's direction. I need to carve out this over here. Uh, But in fact, as God guides us, as he leads us into paths of righteousness, we begin eventually to say, no, no, these ways are good ways. These are the good ways to go. And, uh, and he is honored, and we are satisfied uh, as we are led into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So the shepherd, this is really a beautiful picture here. I mean, the gospel is here. Let me underscore that. I used to mention this all the time, and it's been at least a year 
or so since I've mentioned it, so I'm gonna, I need to mention it to you again. Uh, there is a little passageway in Scotland. I was in Scotland uh, for six weeks, and there were six treasured weeks of my life on my last sabbatical. And uh, there is a road that you would take from the big city down to the small town where I lived, and it, and it climbed up out of this vale uh, and, and then hit this peak, and then you were on your way down to the town. And at the peak, that place has always been known by the people who live in the region, and for hundreds of years it's been known as the rest and be thankful. And when they finally put a road in, you know, they, you know the builders took a big stone and put it on that peak, and, uh, and they marked it, put a little rest up there. This is the rest and be thankful. And the first time our hosts picked us up and were driving us down this long peninsula down to the bottom, they said, oh, we just went through the rest and be thankful. And later on I was playing golf, and, uh, and uh, there was this one golf hole down at the very end of the peninsula, and you had to climb up 120, 130 steps to get up to this thing. And uh, they named golf holes in Scotland, and this golf hole was called the rest and be thankful. And I thought only in Scotland would they name a golf hole after the gospel. Because the gospel is, at its core, this. It's to rest and be thankful. And what's taking place here is the shepherd is making me lie down in green pastures to rest, leading me beside still waters, which carry the connotation of rest, I think. Um, Yeah, the footnote in the ESV says, beside waters of rest. And then he restores my soul and leads me into the paths of righteousness. Well, you know, this is a, these are four words you need to remember. Rest, delight, reverence, and obedience. John Owen lists those four in that order as what it means to know God. What it means to have communion with God. If you don't know the name John Owen, he's a famous old Puritan theologian whose work is so dense you need to get it paraphrased. But to know God, to have communion with God, is a matter of resting, delighting, reverencing, and being obedient. Now, here's what's remarkable about that. The instinct in our lives is to reverse the order of that, isn't it? This is what we always need to worry about and, and be on our guard against. Our instinct is to say, first, I need to be obedient. And out of that obedience, I may develop some sense of reverence, And if I really get that nailed down, then I will finally start to delight in the Lord, and then maybe someday I'll reach my rest. But I wouldn't count on it. And that's the perversion of the Christian faith. And yet, it's the trap that we all fall into, all of us. You know, in in some Christian traditions, that has actually been codified. And... Thank God for Martin Luther, because he he flipped the tables on that. And Owen is operating right out of that stream of thinking. You rest, you delight, you be thankful. And out of that grows reverence, and out of reverence grows obedience. And that's sanctification. And this is what the shepherd is doing, very clearly in this passage. So that's the first thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now let's keep going. Because this shepherd takes on a different aspect uh, in the fourth verse, he becomes uh, not the shepherd who leads into the path of righteousness, 
but the shepherd who becomes the companion who walks shoulder to shoulder through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear uh, no evil, for you are with me. And I should say that if if you're writing in Bibles, and I think you should in pencil, underline for you are with me twice, because that's the center of the psalm. That's the center and the heart of the psalm. But you notice how the pronoun is shifted. I might pay too much attention to pronouns, but they're important. Uh, The shepherd is not described as he anymore, but he's described as you. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, uh, they comfort me. And so communion with God grows as the path becomes dark. The darker the shadow, the closer the Lord. And I don't want to be a, what do they call her, Debbie Downer? You know, to say, oh, life's about to become miserable, but don't worry. You know, but life will have these aspects. This is the thing. We've got to rid ourselves of the notion of, um, of, of happiness being the mark of a thriving and mature Christian life. Uh, sometimes it is, and that's great, and I'm, I want to enjoy that. And every year I make a New Year's resolution to have more fun next year. Um, so it's good to have fun, it's good to be happy. But, you know, there's something very, very important about the valley of the shadow and the Lord drawing near. And our experience being, you are with me, your rod and your staff, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod is, is the protection that the uh, shepherd would have for the sheep, and the staff was his means of supporting them or disciplining them. Uh, these are, the, again, the ways in which the shepherd, uh, at his own expense, uh, cares for the sheep. And that happens in the valley of the shadow. That happens in the dark night of the soul. And so if you so happen to venture near the valley of the shadow, the deep ravine, the valley of darkness, um, I want you to remember the 23rd Psalm. Say, even here, even here, and especially here, you are with me. There's an old uh, Puritan who wrote a a prayer called the Valley of Vision. Have you heard of this? Uh, You can actually buy a collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision, and this one is kind of at the head of them, and then there's there's got to be a hundred of them. There's, there's lots of them. But this is, this is what occurs right at the front of the book, um, the Valley of Vision. And, and let me read it to you. It, it's, a, it, it's a little bit long. But here's a prayer that a Puritan wrote. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, In the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, 
thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. So the psalmist can say, even when I'm in that valley, I will fear no evil, I will fear no harm, because you are with me. And now in the last two verses, it it shifts completely uh, away from the shepherd analogy to the analogy of a host. Um, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, This is more than deliverance from evil. This is more than protection and comfort and, and, uh, and presence in the valley of the shadow Uh, This is triumph. This is vindication. And the presence of my enemies is very vivid, isn't it? It's as though the the enemies have been imprisoned and they are the audience for this meal, you know, in which the Lord is honoring uh, the writer of the psalm. And every detail, the table, the oil, the brimming cup, uh, carries this flavor. It's the flavor of victory, of triumph, and again, uh, vindication. And it's better than a feast. Uh, there is a bond here of everlasting friendship that is being established. And if you read the Old Testament, we could kind of go off on a rabbit trail here. There are many, many, a dozen or more meals in which this is demonstrated, in which there, there's a covenantal aspect to this. You know, this meal is being laid out, an an agreement is being come to, a a relationship is being cemented, a relationship that is is, uh, circumscribed by loyalty and commitment. You know, the the, the wildest picture of this, and, and it's funny, if you go and look it up, I guarantee, almost guarantee, that you'll miss it first time through. But you read Exodus 24, and this is the place where the covenant is being sealed, and you wince a little bit because the Israelites are a little bit too quick to promise obedience, and you know what's coming. Uh, but in the midst of that, the Lord says to Moses, come back up to the mountain, bring Aaron, and bring the 70 elders with you. And they all go up the mountain. Up to that point, Moses was the only one allowed up the mountain. You know, the people had to stop shy of that. But he says, no, bring them, bring them up. <clears throat> and embedded in that, is this curious expression that they saw the Lord and they ate and drank. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's so deeply mysterious, it's not even described any more than that. But, you know, the, the wild imagination will say, what in the world is happening here? You know, <clears throat> even Cecil B. DeMille, when he did the Ten Commandments, didn't have the guts to go here. What in the world is happening? They had a meal. And that meal is the pinnacle meal of the Old Testament, I think. There are many other... Great meals in the Old Testament. But in this one, this is kind of the hub of it, and it's that deeply mysterious. And the reason that you know that this is covenantal is because of the way it's described in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word mercy uh, is, is is the hook. It's a covenantal word. And it's a word that we usually translate, that is translated elsewhere in the, New, in the Old Testament, as steadfast love. So you go back to our absolution that was read earlier. The verse that was read was from Lamentations, right? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His mercies never come to an end. And then in our responses, we kept saying that you are full 
of kindness and steadfast love. In fact, kindness is another very important word here. I think you sang, in the song that you sang, Nathan, you mentioned the cup of kindness. Was that a Scottish author of that song? Using that old Scottish melody? It wasn't? Because the cup of kindness is a big deal in Scottish kind of lore, in in the Scottish personality, in the way that they think about relating to each other. This kindness that they expect from one another as Scots uh, is very important. Well, The word mercy here is translated in the oldest translations, loving kindness. And again, it's the covenantal word that we translate uh, the steadfast love. So when you see this, you know that uh, it's a covenantal framework. That he has entered the presence of the Lord and he is being honored by the Lord. That, that's, that's hard to imagine. And I, I want to say I get a little shaky even attempting to communicate this to you because it's a little bit outside my comfort zone. You know, but remember where the Lord Jesus himself describes himself as being the servant who, who puts on the garment to serve. And, you know, I, I would have been just like Peter saying, no way you're washing my feet. It's not going to happen. I'm, I'll wash your feet, you know, until the cows come home. That's fine. You know, but this is what the Lord does. And you don't know the Lord until you understand that this is the way he disposes himself towards his people. Towards you. You know, David's going to write later uh, in the Psalter, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and this I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the eschatological. This is not actually, to be honest, uh, in a literary sense, eschatological. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord all of my life to the end of my days. At the end of my days, when earth's paths, valleys, and threats are over, I'm in the house of the Lord, is what he's saying. So let's make the connections here as we wrap up that are kind of obvious on further reflection. And please, this is not simply a Presbyterian trick. This is really there. I want to assure you of that. One of the things that I think has been taken from us academically at least, is the unity of the scriptures. So I was thinking about this in Romans chapter 4. Uh, Paul says, what, what do the scriptures say? What do, I think he says, what does the scripture say regarding free justification? And it was about Abraham, and he dives back into the Old Testament. But the scripture is a unity. It's one story from the beginning to the end, and it all ties together, even from these disparate authors across at least a millennia, and maybe more. But first, Jesus self-consciously takes on the identity of the shepherd. Do you remember this? In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own follow me, just as my father knows me, and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And that alerts you to go back to Luke chapter 15, uh, where Jesus is teaching the Pharisees about what he's up to. You know, Luke 15 is very well known, very wealthy chapter. Starts off with the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, grumbling thoroughly. I think the English only says grumbled. Uh, But the Greek says they grumbled thoroughly. 
think about thorough grumbling, usually only the provenance of teenagers, but uh, there it's the Pharisees who are grumbling thoroughly because he's eating with sinners, and he says, let me tell you what I'm up to. And the first story he tells is about a shepherd who leaves the 99, and he goes and finds the one, and he returns. You remember how he returns and what emotional state he is when he returns? He returns with joy. He returns with joy. And he calls for a celebration, for a party, for the one that was lost. Well, Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd here. And he's got to have Psalm 23 in mind. So that his people can say, when they say, the Lord is my shepherd, they know, they know intimately what that shepherd looked like. You know, the care of the shepherd and the intimacy of the companion here in this psalm are both demonstrated in Jesus' person and in his promises. You know, the writer of Hebrews says that he's the exact representation of the divine being. John says in the beginning of his first letter, you know, we saw him, we heard him, and we touched him. We were with him, and we can testify that the Lord is the shepherd, that Jesus is the shepherd. Secondly, Jesus is called the rising sun who penetrates the dark ravine when Zechariah gets up and prophesies in uh, Luke chapter 1 over his son, John. He becomes John the Baptist. Do you remember this? It's, an, it's, a, it's a rich little passage that actually has been memorialized in song, and it even has its own name. We, we call it the Benedictus. And at the end of that, Zechariah says, over his newly dedicated son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, note the pronoun, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is there called the rising sun. The rising sun who gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That actually answers a prophecy uh, made in the Old Testament about the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Well, Jesus is that light. He not only is with you in the valley of the shadow of death, he is shining light. He's shining the light of his grace, the light of his presence. And then thirdly, um, and obviously I think, uh, Jesus is the one who prepares a table. Uh, Jesus is the one who spreads the ultimate covenant table that we're about to celebrate, uh, in in which he offers his body uh, in the bread and his blood in the wine, and he calls his blood the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. You know, that's, that sounds kind of liturgical, and it washes over us, and we forget about it. But uh, to study the covenants, to think about the covenants, to think about God as covenantal, that the broad sweep of the Bible can readily be understood in terms of covenants, and then to hear Jesus say, 
This cup is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. This cup is the the new covenant in my blood, I think is what our translation says. Um, Well, it takes you right back to Exodus 24, doesn't it? You know, the Lord preparing a table in the presence of our enemies, uh, anointing the head with oil, the cup running over, the brimful cup uh, running over. Uh, there's a luxuriance to it there. And, and you, you, can, you can really see how this whole psalm is resonant with a, a Christology you know, that points us to this table and that points us to the reception of him. So uh, let's pray.